Mexico. This is Mechanically Incorrect, a science, engineering, and education podcast like no other, where we talk the good, bad, and ugly of academia, industry, and research. Mechanically Incorrect is a podcast conceived by the Department of Mechanical Engineering at the FAMU FSU College of Engineering in Tallahassee, Florida. Views expressed are solely those of each speaker, and we mean that. I'm Neil Coker. Billy Oates. Let's talk shop. So today we have with us uh, a very special guest, our esteemed uh, teaching faculty, Professor Dr. Shane McConomy, who is, uh, has, bears the distinction of being one of 50 automotive PhDs in the entire country, and I believe the only one in Florida. Is that right? Uh, as far as I'm aware, I'm the only one. And we're very happy to have him for that. And of course, we whip him like a dog with that distinction, because that's what... That's what you get for excellence uh, in this society nowadays. You do what you do well, and you get to do more work for it. Um, but we're very happy to have him today. So, uh, Professor Oates, what are we talking about today? What's on our agenda? Well, let's just get straight into it. The social cognition approach to motivation, which underlies much of our current understanding of academic motivation, is one outgrowth of this newer, more inclusive view. In this framework, our behavior choices, what we're motivated to do or not do, stem from a complex interplay between what we feel and what we believe. In particular, we're motivated by what we believe about our own capabilities, how those capabilities compare to other people's capabilities, and how our capabilities allow us to exert influence over the environment. Um, so this, this discussion, it says, goes it later in the chapter, which maybe we'll get into some of this, but uh, motivational problems that look purely emotional in nature, avoiding academic effort, reacting poorly to feedback, procrastination, are in fact heavily rooted in beliefs. The good news is that, as with, many, as with any beliefs, it's possible to modify these dysfunctional thoughts with the right persuasive techniques. So that's just one paragraph out of Chapter 8 of this um, book called Minds Online. It's written by Michelle Miller back in 2014, and it was a section from um, a workshop. I attended the first day. I, I was, was unable to attend the rest, but Shane was able to attend all of it. So we were going to kind of do a debrief on, on this, this workshop and, and some of the um, discussions that come out of it that I missed. Um, I, I picked this one paragraph to start out with because I, I think this is one of the biggest challenges, at least in engineering education, is you know we spend a lot of time on content and trying to transfer that content to our students, but that's just one dimension of some of the stuff that we try to do. And so in terms of motivation and getting them to... Um, dig into this. It's, it's not trivial. It's a lot of info, info. So I was just curious, you know, starting there and this idea of motivation, um, were there anything that stuck out over the week in terms of getting our students motivated? I mean, not particularly. That's that really 
is highly salient in the discussion as far as like this one thing was what focused on motivation for me, but the it's a big part of the content of of engineering and it's, it's why are, why did you want to become one to begin with? And how do you leverage that to be successful within the content? Um, and then on another side of that is <coughs> as as faculty member, at, like sharing that same motivation to the students so that they see our passion out of it too. I feel like you like you can reach these motivations if you're showing your own side of that. If you become human, then they see your hey, they did it. It was hard for them too. I can do it too. When do you think was the first time you thought about I want to be an engineer? Oh, uh, I I can kind of. So for me, I, I I always had a car that was broken. In high school, my car never ran. They were, and and so I started fixing my own car because if I wanted them to work, I had to fix them. So, um, and I got better and better at it. And then my dad, who was also an engineer, but I had no clue what he did for a profession. Um, I just knew he was gone and came back, and there was food on the table, basically, right? So yeah. um, <clears throat> finally he was like, you should go to school for engineering. And I was like, well, what's that? He's like, that's what I do. And I was like, what's that? <laughs> I drive a train. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, after a little searching and figuring out that, like, engineers are the ones that – kind of make everything that we are engaging with around, you know. There's an engineer involved in every, almost every aspect of what we interact with. And I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. I think the first time maybe that I thought of it was when I was sitting in uh, English class in high school, and I'm trying to remember this book they forced on us to read. Jane Eyre, I think, is one of them. I had to write this stuff about how great Jane Eyre was. Because uh, I tried the other way to say that why I'm having to read this. I have no interest in this. So I think that was probably one of the first places. Like, I think you had a head start then on me, though, because um, I mean, my dad was a mechanic, so I was always interested in why his car was breaking. I asked all these questions he couldn't answer. Uh, but when I had to transfer, before I went to engineering school, I uh, spent some time at a smaller university. And so when I had to transfer, I had to decide which type of engineering um, major to go into. And I was looking at this stuff like, what is civil engineering? And I was, I was already in college. I, I didn't know what civil was. Yeah. I was like, well, electrical engineering, I at least know what that is, but I have no idea how electrons flow through stuff, so I'm staying away from that. So since my dad was a mechanic, that was pretty much the only thing I knew. <laughs> so I chose that, and that's that's how it got started. Um, but yeah, I think uh, similarly, it was probably just trying to figure out how things worked, why they break, things like that. Yeah, I mean... Just kind of my whole life, I was building stuff, right? So and most of it never worked. And then, like, I always wanted to know, well, 
why didn't it work? Like I, one of the first experiments I, I remember is uh, we made it. Me and my brothers made a hang glider. Um, and full size. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, this sounds good. And so, uh, you know, I was a latchkey kid, so my parents would be off at work during the summer, and we'd be at home. And so we made a hang glider, and then I was the lightest, so I got to test it. And so we went up to the chimney and jumped off the roof. There was a pool down there, but we perfect. Nothing. It was, we fell into the pool, and I was like, well, why didn't I glide? And so... <laughs> Uh, so ever since I was a little kid, we, we were making things and, and, and they were not working. So wait, what's the second half of this when parents get home and there's some big hang glider in the pool? How'd that go down? We we would just dispose of it before they got home. (laughs) We had to take it back apart or put it away or throw it away somewhere. I remember having to drive place or drive our bikes to places to throw it in dumpsters that we did not own. Mm-hmm. So what do you think in terms of the students these days um, to get them motivated beyond, yeah, I'm going to get a degree, get a job, but you, you know now, no, nothing ends at that point. So, How do you fight back against our students all wanting to be TikTok stars instead of <laughs> real functioning Members of society. Well, yeah, that's kind of funny because when I came here, my my ambition was actually to be a rock star. That was like my first career choice, and I just found out that I wasn't good at it, and so <laughs> I stuck with the second job. Recall you mentioning an affinity for Maynard James Keenan. That's how I knew you were a cool dude. Yeah, as a fellow yeah. Tool fan, um, but. That didn't work out. I remember you, uh, you, so you were, you were actually, so um, for those listening, uh, Dr. McConomy actually is a graduate of the College of Engineering here uh, and uh, regaled me with a tale that he once had a bright blue mohawk yeah, uh, yeah. W- when he was a student here. So you may look at us like we're a bunch of old fuddy-duddies now, but uh, it's, it's, it's funny to think that, um, you know that that rebellious strength that, that that all young people think is so unique to themselves is uh, it, it ain't that special. So I guess yeah. that was before social media because I need to find some pictures. So this blue mohawk. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the, that's the best part about the '90s because there was no social media right in the, the early 2000s. But I was in. I remember taking a test in, in now Dean Alvey's uh, class and for thermal fluids. Two, might have been lab, but and him walking up behind me and just saying "blue mohawk" and shaking his head and walking away, and, and so yeah, I, even some of the my professors still here remember that. And Dean Alvey remembers tells everybody he meets that knows me that did you know? <laughs> Bet he didn't expect to be cutting you a check at some point later, did he? <laughs> Probably not. Actually. Yeah, the rest is history. But coming back to your question of like motivating them, motivating students beyond the, I don't see that like by the time that they're interacting with me, which is most of them are seniors, but the most of the engineering students that we have, that I don't feel like that their ambitions are to be TikTok stars. I did have one um, that wanted to be a professional comedian, and he's still pursuing that career path up in New York City. So uh, that was kind of an interesting when I was trying to 
coached them through the job application process. And he's like, I, I don't think you're going to be able to help me very well. Follow your dreams, kids. <laughs> so, um, but last I knew he was working on the uh, Marvelous Miss Maisel set. So he was. Oh, so joke's on us. Yeah, yeah. He was. Um, so he was an assistant to a writer. So he wasn't actually writing, but. That's a tough job. So yeah. uh, that is impressive. So the, the second thing I have in here. Um, so one of the most influential frameworks for understanding motivation is this thing called self-determination theory, or SDT. You grew up a work by psychologist Edward Desai, if I have that right. Um, so he talks about intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation. You know, intrinsic is um, like inherent interest, value in activity, extrinsic, external consequences such as rewards and punishments. So it goes on to say, um, he showed that giving people a desirable reward to engage in activities like puzzle solving reduced their interest in doing the task. Conversely, just asking them to do the activity without a concrete reward of any type increased the likelihood that they would spend more time on it and they would, actu- they would actually enjoy the activity more. Um, so I have mixed feelings on translating that to engineering i mean just just personally i I can outside of engineering that when i was at i took the kids this pensacola air show uh not this summer last summer and we were in the land cruiser and i hadn't had a chance to use my um my winch but if you've ever been to this, it's just packed with people, and they drive down from Alabama all over, and you have to get there super early. And so if you don't get there early enough, you know, if you come that far, you're not going to turn around and go home. And so when you're driving down the strip on the beach, and there's these places that says no parking, uh, soft shoulder, you're just going to pull in and deal with it later. So there's all these people that have parked in there, and we're leaving the air show, and they're stuck. And so um, we, we pull one, one guy and his girlfriend out, and he was like, Man, I don't have any cash on me, but I have this nice knife. Do you want to? I was like, that, that would ruin it if you gave me this knife for pulling you out. Because it was so awesome to just pull the guy out, right? Um, so I can I can relate to this in that perspective, but in class I uh, I could see this going both ways. I mean, what in senior design? What's been your perspective? As far as motivation, I always say trace the dollar. What is what is, what is the payment for the for them doing something? And for students, most of the time it's grades. And grades are, but not everyone is motivated by grades. They, um, that's the academic joke, right? Academics is where A students teach B students to work for C students. And so not everyone is motivated by grade, and they don't see that this is directly con- going to correlate to their future on some level. There is correlation to high GPA and employment later on, but like that's... <coughs> But once you break that, that first job employment, nobody knows your GPA after that. So um, I have to find 
you know, I feel like the the best motivator I have is just to to give them my time, and that's almost a more a better payment. Like, hey, I'm here. I'm investing in you. I, I want you to be better, and in the end, you'll you'll get the good grade. But they seem to take that currency pretty uh, pretty well. They like mm-hmm. it. I think we'll get into some more of that a little bit later. But it, it does remind me of, I've heard this um, argument on, it was on this other podcast I listen to sometimes, The Knowledge Project, and they were talking about what's called, he, he termed it uh, high-slope individuals, um, and they were talking about startup companies, and, you know, one was, how do you define a startup? Is is Google a startup or Microsoft and uh, it, it wasn't as much about the size as the rapid increase of um, whether it's technology or um, investments or re- return on those. And so um, they were talking about often high-slope individuals, those that are really highly motivated self-starters, are often attract other high uh, high-slope individuals. And so once you get... Um, someone that's not that motivated in your company, um, that can really impact overall performance. And so there was a lot of interesting discussion on, you know, in, in academia or in our classes, we have these rubrics, and you go by the rubric, you get your A, B, C, or D, or F. Um, when you start a company or you even at a big company, there's no rubric. And so that translation after they get that degree to then figure out, oh, wow, how do I know I'm succeeding? Yeah. If they figured that out, please let me know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, like, the, yeah, that's it. In, in the industry, it's even less of a rubric I think that they there's professions that have tried to study this industrial organizational psychology right that they they work on how do we evaluate our workers efficiently and effectively and fairly but it, it there is no good rubric um, you just kind of know it when you see it I think that's why a lot of folks resort to a lot of common sense maxims like what you were talking about. It's where if we get the expression, um, you know, a bad apple spoils the whole bunch. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one thing. I mean, you're also both going to an, another uh, concept in um, behavioral psychology, which is that of positive versus negative reinforcement. Uh, in, in your case, Shane, uh, you mentioned you know the aspiration to high grades as, or a higher GPA as being something that motivates students. As an example of you know positive reinforcement, um, but then things get dicey when you get into situations like, for instance, where you do have uh, group dynamics where you do have a definitive weak link, and you know how does that impact the overall? morale and overall uh, functionality of of a group um and uh, you know of course that's something that's been debated uh, probably as long as people have been coming together in groups um i'm not really sure uh what the ultimate takeaway is there except that i, I do know that um when uh you have a, a group of people in in 
you have uh, a definitive weak link. Um, it, it does have uh, deleterious impact um, if left unchecked, um, which is also why, on a practical level, uh, another common sense maxim uh, comes uh, to mind, which is that we are effectively the sum of the five people or whatever number you want to throw out that we spend the most time with. Um, and it, it's interesting that uh, a lot of these uh, uh, these concepts, which have been studied thoroughly by sociologists and psychologists over the past you know half century or so, um, uh, th- these are not new ideas. Um, we're just kind of rediscovering them in the professional context. Um, yeah, there's similarly like the, the weak link. I don't like the weak link concept. It's, I do a lot of the project-based learning, and there's a lot of students that essentially every class I teach, there's groups, right? And I don't really like the idea of a weak link. Yeah, someone might not be contributing as much as another individual. Um, but I ask, most of the time I ask, was, was the boundaries set up properly at the beginning? So uh, I always have them do a team contract at the beginning and say, like, what are, what are the rules for your, your group and how are you going to engage with each other? How much time are you expecting from each other's project? And so at first, is it like, are, did you set up the rules right for the team? And if you go further than that, everyone's different and everyone can contribute to, we're all torn different ways. We have students that have jobs. We have students that don't have jobs and some that are doing research projects, et cetera. And you only get the same amount of hours. And if you you track track what's important to that individual, that my class might not be important to them. Like they don't have to do well in my class and they don't have to like me, but they do have to pass it. So sometimes they're, managing time budgets of everything else in life with family, job, grades, etc. And if if class A is more likened to what they want to do as a profession, they're going to give more time to that. And so as a result the team might suffer, but they're not a weak link per se. They're just managing time budgets. Fair point. Um do you feel that laying out those boundaries uh, as you mentioned um do you feel like that helps students to keep themselves and others more accountable? Or I mean, I'm assuming there's mixed results there. So the, the biggest advantage of laying out the boundaries I feel at the beginning is I never am saying you're not pulling your weight. I can point to the, to, to the contract that they helped develop and agreed to at the beginning and said, according to the contract, we're supposed to be giving 10 hours a week. How many hours do you feel that you're contributing? And then it lets them, it's, it's not accusatory in nature. And so I tend to get better, more positive response when I'm dealing with people who are not giving the same amount of time budget as the other students are. I think that idea of boundaries is an interesting one. So kind of coming back, this idea of there's no rubric when you graduate. Um, and just thinking out loud here, which may be dangerous, but um, if it, it, from the leadership perspective, let, let's say you know if you start at the top, the CEO they have to define a vision. They got to have a mission for their company, uh, so they're going to take full ownership. But below that, everyone has to meet that mission in whatever 
direction that or whatever role that they're in. I don't know if that's that much different than in the classroom. So if you have the instructor, they have a syllabus, they're defining expectations and what the mission of the class is, and then you have to hit those expectations or you don't. And I think that's not that much different than the industry jobs I've been in. No, I, I agree. And um, if, the, again, if we go back to this course development workshop that we, one of the big topics that was establishing that, like transparency of work. Like, if you know what's expected of you, then it's much easier to rise to the occasion. But when it's buried in an assignment that's not like aligned properly to content, <coughs> and like the student has no clue what the expectation is, and so at some point they just throw their hands up and be like, "This is what I think," and then I get it, and on my end, and I'm like, "Oh, they didn't understand the problem." Well, no, either they didn't understand it or I didn't communicate it. It's one of the two. It's generally both. Yeah, and um, I won't call it any names here, but I'll often hear this complaint from faculty is um, students aren't coming to class prepared. Uh, and then I ask the questions like, well, why aren't they coming to class prepared? And who's, who's taking ownership for that? Have you done everything you ha can do to explain what those assignments are or what their expectations are? Um, Maybe they're not carrying, carrying that out, but if, if you take that on and then in the end they get the grade that they uh, expect to have. But if, if you're not laying out those expectations, then don't expect them to come to class prepared. Yeah, transparency of work is, is huge in my opinion, and that was brought up in this workshop a, a couple times and you know I, I always tell my students that when they're writing that science is not a murder mystery like I shouldn't get to the end of your report to find out the big aha moment of what you discovered like I should know it at the very beginning as to why I care about reading the rest of this document and the same should be done for the students when they're trying we're giving them the assignment. We should put that transparency there. So, like, I'm making you do this because this is, I think it will help you do X, Y, Z in your future. Um, and a lot of the capstone design, senior design coursework, it's that transition from student to career, whether that career is more grad school, so more schooling, or whether that... Uh, transition is to employment. There's a, so that transition, sometimes the students feel like it's busy work, but there's a lot of meeting minutes things that you have to learn on how to do before you go to work because, quite frankly, I'm still bad at taking meeting minutes. Like, but I know it's an important thing because the one that has the notes controls the content. Yeah, there's these choices we have to make and where we're going to apply those to you. And there was one other thing in here I noticed. That, have you guys heard of this thing called ego depletion? 
No, please enlighten which, me. <laughs> which, to a certain extent, you know how I talk about you should drop your ego, which sounds sounds pretty good. Um, but this is a different perspective on this. So it says ego depletion is created by exercising self-control in one arena, and this reduces our self-control in a completely different arena, leading to some surprises and crossover effects. So, you know, if you do have kids or you have people constantly coming and asking you for stuff, eventually you're just going to give in say, okay, go, you can have this dozen donuts. I don't care anymore. <laughs> right? Um, yeah, so actually here it says, a dieter who is depleted from resisting a tantalizing buffet spread at work is more likely to give in and temptation of online shopping later that night. So it's not just giving or having very good discipline of not eating bad food and then crave that evening it'll cross over to something else which is interesting and so uh, other examples a parent who has been working all day to keep his temper with his kids might lack the will to turn off the tv after dinner uh, and go finish that term paper uh, i'm sure we have a few students uh single moms or whoever that are dealing with those things so so stress too seems to drain our central stores of willpower so that it's harder to exert self-control even when the stressful situation is over. Um, It does raise these questions, though, I have. You know, there's a limit to everything, right? Um, But if you you also don't stress the system, eventually you're going to get hit with something, and it's going to it's going to be like a wall, right? Uh, if, if you're not pushing the students to some degree. And uh, I think Neil and I were just talking the other day, this other podcast, Andrew Huberman, he has some interesting discussions. I was just going to bring that up. And uh, one of them, if I'm remembering right, correct me if I'm wrong here, he talks about this uh, go, no-go thing. So it's, it's basically having a very, like... Uh, I'd call it micro-discipline. So if he just wanted to pick up this to have a a sip of drink, he'll just not do it for a few seconds or a minute or so. And uh, apparently this will train the the neurons in the brain to build up up that that, um, discipline over time by just having these no-go-go things. And so in that that next paragraph, they, they talk, a little bit about that, and they say the, the good news is, like a muscle, willpower may be something that we can build upon with repeated practice. So a student keeps returning to that challenge online, uh, that, to that challenging online course at the end of each tiring day. It's it's possible that he or she will begin to build up greater reserves, of personal willpower. Uh, to that point, I, I'd like to revisit. Uh, a concept you brought up at the beginning of, of this talk about versus the intrinsic versus extrinsic mm-hmm. motivation. Mm-hmm. Um, it, there's a parallel concept I'd, I'd like to bring up, which is that of the internal versus external locus of control. I feel like they're related. I think we've talked about this before mm-hmm. as well. I, I do, th- and how I think that they're related, the, the definition of a locus of control is, uh, well, the general sense of how much willpower or uh, one has in their their individual 
day-to-day life uh, and, and to what do you attribute it? If you have an internal locus of control, um, you have assumed personal responsibility for the most part, um, broadly speaking. Uh, whereas an external locus of control is somebody who feels that the events in their lives are more affected by, uh, as the uh, self-definition would imply, uh, external events and external uh, stimuli. And um, I, I do find that, I, I think that they are related because um, my experience and observation has been that people who have more of an internal locus of control are more likely to have that intrinsic motivation, which I do think has much more long-term staying power than if you're relying on an extrinsic motivation. Um, and I, I, I do feel that it has something to do uh, with the overall um, uh, impact on motivation, generally speaking. So I wonder from the workshop, was there the special life hack or, or whatever to, to tell our students how to build up this reserve on willpower? No, I don't remember anything specific on willpower, but like as far as I feel like willpower and motivation are, you know, if something is motivating, you don't need the the will the need for willpower comes down, and so there was more about how to motivate and you know and how not to alienate make people feel. I remember going through class and. Somebody <clears throat> saying, "All right, look left, look right. One of you is not going to be here because the graduation rates are, mm-hmm. you know, one in three don't make it." And that's the opposite of what you want to do to students. It's so demotivating, being like, "Hey, you're going to fail." But you know, at at that time, they were they were just trying to say, like, "Hey, you can do it. You work hard. If you work hard, you'll be the one." And you know, but the idea of just saying, like, hey, I believe in you at the beginning of class. This class is going to be hard, but I believe that each one of you can accomplish it. Yeah, I do. I don't know if that was some of the Monday discussion I was there with or some things I read later. You know, Carol Carol Dweck, she has some some interesting discussion on fixed mindset versus growth mindset, right? And so if if you have some students, maybe a, a group of students or one student, that did really well on something. It's like, oh, yeah, you're really smart. That's good. There's a good chance that student is now going to be very conservative so they don't want to fail because now you've told them they're smart. They don't want to look like they're an idiot, right, or dumb. But if you tell them, oh, wow, this was was a hard class. You must have worked really hard to get to this point. I would think that that would keep the willpower going. So, yeah, it's going to take hard work, but it'll pay off. But even more than just paying off is just telling them that they can do it. Like, it, it's hard, but you can do it. Like, mm-hmm. If you've gotten to this point, you, you're deemed qualified to continue. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, so you, each class, because the prereqs, should qualify you to do the next part and just reminding them that you're capable and giving them that upfront like philosophy like this is not easy and it's been hard um but you can keep going 
Mm-hmm. So, question on that note, um, do you have any tips or tricks or otherwise strategies for building up a student who may be struggling? Yeah, uh, that's almost like a case by case basis. So, like well, I'm that, aware, the depending on what they're struggling with, um, you know, for instance, if they're bad at time management. There's a technique called the Pomodoro technique for time management. And What's that? You, Pomodoro, I believe it means a tomato in Italian. And so it's based off the tomato timers, right? And the, the goal of, of that is you set a 20-minute timer, and then you get a five-minute break. And 20-minute timer, five-minute break. And you do three of those, in your, or you do four, and your fourth break is a 15-minute break. But before you start a task, you're supposed to guesstimate how many Pomodoros it will take you to complete that task. And so a lot of people who are bad at time management are bad at estimating time. So I say, all right, guess how many Pomodoros it will take you to finish this homework assignment. Or finish one problem if if the homework assignment is too much. And then track it and then say... I said it was going to be four, but it took me six. And so then you'll get better at estimating, and then you'll get better at planning your time. That's something uh, myself and the chair were talking about the other day, about how just in our own professional lives, I mean, it's easy to compartmentalize a given number of tasks that we have to do in our day-to-day workflow and think, oh, yeah, I can do this, this, and this in an hour or two. But then we don't factor in all the unpredictable variables, like is someone going to walk into my office needing something unexpected uh, at a given moment, and how much time will that take away? So then you have to think about the the unseen, um, you know, obstacles that you might you might incur in the course of a day. Um, we we don't always do the best job of um, of taking those things into consideration and realistically coming up with a. Um, with an idea of how long something's going to take. So sometimes, I, I mean, I'm guilty of quoting someone on how long something will take, and often I am not able to deliver within that time frame. And that's my that's my struggle that I, I need to overcome and get better at is learning, um, you know, what can I realistically deliver within a given time frame. So uh, students, if you're listening, uh, it it doesn't stop just when you get out of school this is a this is a lifelong process for many of us i think though even say if you had no people coming in uh distracting you and you could just sit and crank through it i think that's a really optimistic point of view that say you're gonna be able to do that because we still have the internet here i could check my phone see what's going on on twitter instagram um, yeah. So was keeping that discipline to actually sit down, if you can really just sit down and, like, I'd ask, how many times have you sat down and read a book for an hour uh, in the last month? That's, that's pretty hard. And that's, it, it, the, the, you'll, I think you'll like this Pomodoro, because it's several things. One, it, it says turn everything off for 20 minutes, because there's really nothing that can't wait 20 minutes. Right, so there's not a phone call, there's not a text message, there's not an email that I, like, I can pause it for 20 minutes, and then you track the ones that get interrupted by like a colleague <coughs> walking in or something like that, and you, so 
start to recognize on how often you're interrupted. So maybe the place of which you're working is causing your, the environment that you've created, and it's not actually your ability to do time management, but the environment that you've created work in is the place that you can't. So for students, they might be working out in the atrium or in the ME Help Center, and there's too many friends there. That's an interruption. You're not going to get a lot of work done. So you have to find a focused space that you can actually say, no, world, I'm turning you off for 20 minutes. I'll give the world five minutes later. And the five-minute break is supposed to be a truly, truly a break. So if you want to take a nap, if you want to cruise the Internet, it's supposed to be like a comp- – and that gives you the, the return that you need to come back to. And then as you get better at this, just like you're talking about like working the discipline up, you can stretch those from 20 minutes to 25 minutes to 30 minutes, and then you can start stretching those. Yeah, I think so. If you're definitely if you're a college student – I think you have a little bit more plasticity in the brain than I do. I'd have to work a lot harder at it. Uh, but, I, yeah, I think it's just like going to the gym. But, yeah, you, you've got to control it and say, like, what, what is reasonable? And if you're always failing your 20-minute timeline, that's telling you that you need to reduce it to 15. Yeah, I think that comes back really to that willpower. Um, if, you, if you would have told them to start, okay, start it at 60 minutes. Just not going to do it. Uh, Ten minutes, I think so. That's about the average YouTube video. I bet they could do that. <laughs> it's it's interesting to the ones that I've done this with. Uh, they come back and tell me on how hard it was, and that they realize. It, and I don't. It's not the sad part, but like I'm getting them as seniors. So like, because most of my classes are upperclassmen. Like, if I had gotten them as freshmen, sophomores. And if they learn that then, that's a good technique to bring throughout your time here. I haven't done this in a while, but I used to do at least 10-minute meditations. And I'm curious if any of that translates over to these things, to just sit and not do anything, but be with your own thoughts, which is kind of sometimes a scary scary thing. scary place. (laughs) But, I, I, yeah, I don't know if, if those things translate over or whether that's something we should encourage our students to do to build this practice. Quick question uh, to both of you, because y'all are both a little bit older than me. Um, have, I'm just curious as to what your perception on just general um, attention span over the past 20 or so years, has that changed at all just with our modern world? Because it does seem that we have a... The way society is now structured with social media and YouTube and all that being at the forefront of uh, our media consumption, it seems that people, our, our brains en masse have been changed to, uh, to, to have a much shorter attention span than we used to. And since you're both educators, I'm curious as to any specific observations you've, you've gathered on that and how you feel that that affects um, what you do. I think someone who researches this would probably disagree with me or would maybe have a different opinion. But allegorically, I think that the attention span is roughly the same. I think it lends itself to what you were just talking about where the discipline, you know, a a person who's resisting temptation to eat food at the buffet will then go shopping online. And the attention span, like there's so much stress in other areas 
that it comes out as being inattentive to other because we have to focus here. So when I get that chance, I'm going to not focus on anything. Um, there was one thing that was coming to my mind, and now it slipped, maybe because I'm thinking about Instagram. <laughs> Does this I, kind I, of prove the point I was just making? <laughs> no, I, I would say that I, so social media doesn't affect me as much. I'm a little older than Shane, so maybe that's why. I would say some physical habits of email. You know, it's easy to go. I, I've never checked how many times I actually check email um, in an hour, but it's probably a lot more than I should. Um, I, I, one thing I, I picked up from one of Jocko's podcasts recently that I started doing at the dinner table with our kids, um, and, you know, it's actually not just... So my kids are 18 and 13. Uh, my, I think my wife is more active on social media, too. And so I can go through a whole meal. I have no interest in looking at my phone. We started this rule I picked up from Chaka said they do dinner tables. If I see, I won't do this with my wife, but with my kids, if they pick up the phone... Everyone else at the table is supposed to just start saying dopamine, 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 dopamine. Um, so I think that's a pretty powerful molecule. Um, and you, you do have to be careful with it. It's addictive. So I, I started, when, again, just that it's there. Like I can pick up my phone, I can check email, and but social media is there to, it's mindless, like there's, you know, you can doomsday scroll as much as you want. So I started trying to do something that's more productive, I guess. And I started in that when I got the urge to go to uh, like cruise the internet, whether it be Amazon or it be uh, Facebook or Instagram, I started doing Duolingo so I could start learning a language. And I started like turning that that craving into something that was somewhat beneficial. Interesting. Which language? German. Any progress so far? A little. I, I can read it and hear it better than I can speak it, so I'm, I'm not going to practice. That's pretty good. It's uh, usually harder to do than, at least for me, to, to speak it, but maybe it's just the learning mode of you know, seeing it. The, the German language is, <clears throat> is, is quite like... It's very good for engineers, actually. Like it's structured. It's very structured, and the rules are consistent. Um, English majors are probably saying ours are too, but... No. So I had a friend of mine, she's an English PhD, and what I learned is that grammar is very consistent. It's when we start applying style that it breaks down. And so that, that style is actually what frustrates us. And so when we're reading things and we see it, there are stylistic guidelines that end up frustrating us. But the grammar rules are as strong as mathematics rules. Um, and so a good example of the style is the Oxford comma. Um, and, and we talk about that as a target and metric setting in my class. But the Oxford comma or the serial comma it's the one before the and. Um, yeah, I've heard mixed things now on this where you don't need it in front of the and. If you have the and there, it's redundant. 
Well, our I br- used to use it. Our brains will add it in is what it mm. is what what actually comes about. But it grammatically it's wrong, and it, it you can change the meaning of a sentence. But our brains are trained to just add it in. Where the rule comes from is, sci- is style, and if you think about print, um, like a newspaper, they would pull they would pull the 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 serial or Oxford comma out because that if you think about every comma that they could save, that's how much ink would they save. Yeah, so that's, that's comes, the, the AP style. I, I've worked in journalism for three and a half years. I'm very familiar with it, and I absolutely hate it because yeah. It goes, the, Oxford, the classic example is I had eggs, toast, and orange juice. But if you don't use the Oxford comma, you're talking to toast and orange juice about the fact that you had eggs. So uh, That's what I was wondering about. I, was like, I knew that there would be one case where it would change the context. Yeah, and the, um, there, there's several of those that where the comma just, if you drop it out or use it wrong, it, it changes the context. But our brains are trained to add it in. So from a print point of view, it saves paper and it saves ink. And so it's been omitted. Um, It's funny, though, that we're basically completely electronic right now. I mean, print newspapers exist, but they're very much so a rarity now. And yet AP still insists that they drop that extra comma. But I think it does have something to do with the the word count and the actual space on uh, a web page. So it's still... Uh, holds conceptually, um, even though all the grammar Nazis out there um, know it's wrong and will continue to bang that drum until the end of time. So it's a, those, those are styles. So IEEE has a style, AIAA has a style, ASME has a style, and these are all rules of styles that have been applied. And what frustrates us is when they change from organization to organization. And so what ends up happening is you buy in to the one that you're publishing in. And so... Now, are we talking... We're still talking grammar style, not format? Or both? Grammar style is bo- affects both grammar and format. And so... Um, but grammar is, is completely rule-based. Because I, I wonder if... Because I don't... We, we have this in one of our classes where we, we have a person from English that helps the students with style and things like that and transition from, from lab summaries. I wonder, though, will you get into those kind of cases where you got to be really careful on do you put that comma there in the context? Because I, I vaguely remember there was a case in Obama's administration and DOE. I can't remember the exact phrasing, but they were, they were trying to um, get rid of uh, some nuclear waste at Yucca Mountain, and the way this thing was phrased, they used the wrong chemicals, and it created like a billion-dollar meltdown. Uh, so I wonder, you know, as an engineer, I think, okay, you just need to communicate what what this means. And so I wonder, within all these different styles, does that just make it a bigger mess? Yeah, I think that they're you will find that the stylistic causes problems between and does impede communication unless you're within that discipline and then it aids. That's like essentially the point. So when you're within the IEEE community, there's you, you can say, 
oh, these are expectations of how we communicate, and then you grow and learn them. And then initially it's a pain because you don't know them, but then as you know those expectations, you learn them and it becomes easier to communicate. And then as some other person jumps out of their silo and tries to learn this, it's even harder. Right. And I, but yeah. the rules of grammar are rules of grammar, and they're consistent. Uh, and Now, I'm not good at them, but they are. Mm-hmm. It goes to show that punctuation does matter. And in this case, it kind of reflects um, it, the example you brought up, uh, Billy, shows that uh, more than just uh, punctuation, the intent matters. Um, and that's something, I mean, I, I probably am overly precise in my written communication, but the reason for that is because I don't like any room for any kind of unwanted interpretation. Um, I do believe precision is important, and um, I think stylistically how we choose to communicate should reflect that. Um, I expect every email I send out is to be precise, and all our faculty will understand it perfectly. Yeah, how's that work out practically? <laughs> so, yeah, we, we can do the best we can. I, I think I'd heard this best. I, I can't remember who quoted this, but um, when you're typing out the email, it sounds like a symphony. But when they read it on the other end, it sounds like someone's Morse code tapping on the table. So there's usually some compression loss, whatever your thought is. Yeah, when when it's an important email that, one that's not, I can't fire off real quick and say, hey, do you have this kind of email when it's, I need somebody to read it. I'll actually have the, the, the computer read it back to me. Mm. And the computer doesn't make a mistake. Mm-hmm. So, like, when it's reading it back to me, like, I, ca- I hear the errors. Yeah, I think, I, I think we're, we're prone to this, to filling in words that are in my head, but aren't on the page and you can just totally miss it and then when it's in like robot voice it, yeah it stands out even more yeah. like so like that and they have i i do this in microsoft word mostly but like when word has like uh different voices you could make it a, a pleasant australian male or pleasant uh f- british female mm-hmm. voice or you can make it robot and i always make it like <laughs> robot so it, it stands out and that i catch it easier so do you tell the students these tricks? Yeah. Do any yeah. of them use it in writing emails? Can uh, you the, tell? The, the <clears throat> robot voice I actually picked up from a student. Oh, okay. So, like, um, so they, they, I didn't know that it could, I knew it could do that, but I never thought to do that. Just mm-hmm. like a text-to-speech thing? Or? Yeah, it's just reading what's on the page, and then it's just whatever's on the page, it spits out. And then the commas, it does the pauses right, so if you don't have the com- pause right, or you put it in the wrong spot, Interesting. your ears will hear it even though you did not grammatically that. <laughs> so, like, it's, it's, just, it's very useful. Um, so how about we've got these from the, I can't remember if this was the first or second day, but I maybe it was the second day on course alignment. I like these case studies here. So uh, I thought I'd just read through this and then... Did you all go through this and uh Yeah, discuss? we went through these one by one. Okay. Because yeah. uh, there was a few in here that I thought were really good. So I want to I know what, what your response is. Um, Professor X wants her students in her chemistry course to be able to 
use scientific language to describe everyday phenomenon. She plans to test her ability to do this with multiple choice exams, which they must choose the correct definition of each term in a list of four possible definitions. She plans for students to learn the terminology from reading the textbook and using glossary as needed and from listening to lectures. So the first question in this is, how well will the exam questions Professor X described measure students' mastery of her goal? The goal being using scientific language to describe everyday phenomenon. So is multiple choice going to hit the target? Yeah, no. no. So like, because um, all of these case studies are basically how does what you're giving the student as work represent align to what you're trying to get out of them. So like um, in this case, she's using multiple choice to get the student to practice using scientific language. And so they're not getting the chance to practice. They're just getting the chance to recognize. And so that's yeah. not, they're not practicing. Yeah. Yeah, I think that follows the second question too. On the students, do students get practice and feedback that will help them accomplish this goal? Clearly, I don't think they're going to get that. Um, there is an element of recognition. Like, so if we were going to scaffold that language, right? So we're, we only have this snippet, and all these are just a snippet mm-hmm. of it. But if I'm if I'm trying to measure the student's ability to to use engineering or scientific language. Um, if I give them multiple choice and, they, and they're getting those right, then I know that they recognize scientific language. And then the next scaffold step would be, can they use it? And so, Because it might be that they don't even recognize it. So yeah. at some point you have to measure, where do you start your measurement from? Mm-hmm. So maybe at a freshman class we're going to have them recognize it, then use and then maybe at a senior class, we're going to have them just use. So depending where this is in the curriculum, you might have to measure, can they recognize it first? Yeah, might come back to that question on willpower. If, if you go already up to the point where they're using it and they can't even recognize it, they're going to give up pretty fast. Yeah, that's, uh, was it, if you judge a fish's ability to, by its ability to climb a tree, it will forever think it's dumb? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, um, so were there some ju- suggestions on how we could help Professor X? Uh, basically getting them to, you know, give them the ability to practice. So, like, how do you explain, so you, this is chemistry. I don't do chemistry, but if this was my class, explain how does a toaster work. Use scientific language to explain the process of, of how a toaster works or go find things out into the world and practice explaining them scientifically. Like, what is, there, there's a, I think it was Dr. Bazina here um, who introduced me to uh, Cooking for Engineers. And it basically was a website that explained all the cooking processes in scientific terms. Hmm. Um, and so, like, what is occurring when you caramelize onions? Like, mm-hmm. what is the thermodynamics that's, going it's going through explain that and so give them the opportunity to recognize it and explain it and and actually to be wrong about Mm -hmm. explaining it so that you can discuss it further Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah i think that's a good idea 
Professor C teaches college algebra. Her students are accustomed to simply memorizing procedures for solving problems, but she wants them to understand math conceptually and be able to explain why they solved each problem in the way that they did. In class, she solves problems on the board and describes why she's doing what she's doing. For homework, students use software that comes with the textbook to solve similar problems. The software is adaptive, so the students continue to solve problems of various types and levels of difficulty until they consistently get them right. So the first question is, how well does Professor C's assignment, the homework, measure students' progress toward her goal? Well, what we'll find is none of these really align, right? So, like, they don't, they, she's having them solve numbers. Her goal is to get them to understand it conceptually. But she's, there's no sense making in this process. So the idea of she's having them practice rigid routines to solve the problems. Um, yeah, that's interesting because when I, when I read this, I, I thought she was on the right track. Uh, depending on what this means by adaptive. So I thought this adaptive may give them some insight. Yeah, so that was unclear to me as well as far as how it adapts because I'm thinking of like uh, the GRE exam mm. that as you take it and you get more questions right, it gets yeah. harder. Yeah. Um, but you're not necessarily given the feedback to understand conceptually. Yeah, because on, on the second uh, question, the, the thing that I had asked was, um, or, or thought about was, uh, the second question is, is the feedback the students will get on their work aligned with the goal, why or why not? And I thought it was partly, because um, I, I mentioned if the software mimics some aspects of in-class methodology. But I, I did ask, does it give feedback about good and bad approaches to problems? And so then... They may start getting some intuition on why one method works over another. Yeah, again, based on the information, we can only infer. So, like, I think that the big concept here is that the the repetitive routine of follow this rigid structure to solve problems just to get to an answer mm -hmm. is not matching the idea of, like, understanding conceptually, like, what's happening in this this problem, how is it changing? How are you using the, the, the fun laws of mathematics to, to kind of bend it to your will? That's, this is just do these steps and you'll get the answer. Mm -hmm. um, I think of when I was learning to do long division, and I, my, I still remember my, my math teacher in fourth grade got us all to repeat the chance divide, multiply, subtract, bring down, repeat, divide, multiply, and like had the whole class like just chanting in unison like this is how you do long division. But like being able to apply it and, and, and say like, okay, like how am I, what am I, these steps, I don't understand where they go. I, I, don't, I was never given the chance to explore like the breakdown of, and yeah. Yeah, I think that's the, the biggest problem. If, uh, if you remember all these steps, you can solve this one problem or one that's almost the same. But, you know, in engineering, when it comes to exam, we're going to change the problem. And that's like, 
if you're in robotics and you build this fancy robot that's supposed to be that great and then you show it to this kid and he just sticks a wrench in it and destroys the whole thing, right? It's just totally destroyed. Um, so the, the thing that I had was curious about on the third question was, what are your suggestions for Professor C? And uh, what did I say here? I said, have the students log why they're choosing a particular path to solve the problem. Um, what happened if they got stuck? What do, you, what do you do to try to get yourself unstuck? And so figuring out these different ways to approach this problem or how can you continue to break it down into smaller bits that you can chew on? Well, one thing that like you kind of brought up was uh, the, the we as professors we give you these problems and we're going to give you a different version of that on the test. I remember that the different version was always the harder version, and so like the hardest learning should be done not on the test. Like the homework should be the hard part. Yeah, I right? agree, and because. Tests are typically, we're confined to a time limit of class. Like, you can give them extra time if, you know, like, there's ways to go about doing that. But, like, in the end, like, eventually the test just has to, time has to expire. And, um, yeah. I, I think that's where the, I like the military strategy. Um, if you can train, train that, you know, platoons or, or whoever uh, and simulate the war environment, you want to do that to the best of your ability. So when they go out there, they're, they're not going to get killed, right? Uh, so I think that training should be the same as homework. You should hit them hard and the homework, you know, you still got to build it up so they can solve it or at least to the point where you can come back to class and discuss and say, hey, here's, here's where you screwed up. And this comes to some of the other stuff. I remember the first day we talked about where um, we we should um, talk about those failures as a real learning opportunity. It's not because you weren't smart enough. Um, you're in the class because you want to figure this stuff out. Um, but yeah, I agree. You should really push them hard on the homework. There's, I like my quotes, right? So there, again, here's another one where like. The, the difference between the, the master and the student is the master has failed more times than the student has started. <laughs> and so, like, that idea is, like, that's what I've, I've made a lot of mistakes, and I've made so many mistakes that now I'm able to learn from other people's mistakes that now I can not make those mistakes because I, I have that, that cognition ability, I guess. Um, yeah, we, we certainly don't want our students to fail on every homework. Um, yeah, learn from your peers' failure so you don't make that same one. Right? Yeah, they're, they're, I had a friend that was a fighter pilot, and they, in their ready room they had this sign on the door of a crashed airplane, and it said, uh, learn from other people's mistakes. You don't have time to make them all yourself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, in that frame, in the the test is really just a re reflection of previous efforts. If if what you're what what you're really focusing on is the homework, um, the test isn't really that much of a of an important metric. Um, but if you're obviously not 
succeeding in your homeworks, um, the low test scores shouldn't surprise anyone. Yeah, I'm guilty of writing a bad test, not just questions. I've written bad tests before and had to figure out what to do when I go from there. So in the sense, I, I have to kind of regroup and say, what am I going to do with this data? It, it, it's kind of bad. Um, it did not align to what I was trying to measure. I did not communicate effectively in what I wanted to get out of them. And so now I got this test, and I don't have time in the semester to go back and retest. So how do I fix my problem? And so uh, sometimes it's, you know, if it's just a bad question, I toss it out. You know, if it's a, it's a bad couple questions, then we review it and I give it as a quiz. And I give that as, because I wrote the bad question, and I just give it as a quiz, and then I get the measurement that I'm looking for. Um, and so I wonder if we should um, explain these things up front to the students better. I, I don't think I do this enough, is to lay out the expectation that some of the questions I give you may have, actually I've done this a few times, like maybe this doesn't have an answer. Um, and to some degree, it's up to you to sort that out or come ask me um, or explain why it's wrong. And so I think to some degree, there's there's some merit in that. So this goes to the, again, I, I, I decided to do it this semester more uh, transparently, but the, in statics, I gave a, our project was this truck problem. And I told the students, it's like, I haven't taught you the technique to solve this. This is an advanced technique, and that is called, this is statically indeterminate, so you, you need to use the method of superpositioning to solve this problem. You can either A, go learn that method and then solve the problem, or B, write an assumption and justify why you think that assumption is valid, and then solve the problem. Either is fine, but... It's up to you to decide how you're going to go about that and make your case. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good communication skill. Once they get out, you have to report on data or some modeling results to your boss where they're about to invest in some major hardware or equipment, right? Here's the assumptions we're using. Use that in judgment on whether we're going to go forward on this or not. Yeah, and you, they're essentially... It gave them the choice, like, if you did one calculation, if you made one assumption, it would be more, I guess, liberal with the, the calculation, more at risk, and the other one would be too conservative. So it's going to be somewhere in the middle. Mm-hmm. So how do you determine that middle range uh, uh, effectively? Yeah. Um, so there's two more here, and these last two I, I really liked. Um, Professor B teaches fundamentals of human resource management. Um, Sorry, Neil, we're not going to get directly into the fun of HR. But um, she wants students to use their knowledge of key concepts, theories, and processes of human resource management to analyze and evaluate various approaches to HRM um, in a business environment. For the final project, she asked them to give a presentation in which they select an appropriate uh, an approach to HRM in a business environment and describe the advantages and disadvantages of the approach. This is worth 50% of the final grade. She provides a rubric so students can understand her expectations for excellent work. 
So there's a breakdown of rubric. So 35% project grade is to the quality of the slides. These are things like design, clarity, style, grammar, and spelling. 30% to covering the topic thoroughly, 20 to public speaking component presentation. This includes not using much notes, speaking clearly, confidently, and avoiding verbal fillers, and 15% to creating and engaging the audience. When the students give the presentation, she marks whether their presentation was excellent, satisfactory, needs improvement, or unsatisfactory in each category, and she also provides comments to explain the rating in each category. Um, and so coming back to the beginning, she wants them to use their knowledge of key concepts, theories, process, and HRM to analyze and evaluate these different approaches in business. So the first question was, how well does the professor's assignment, this presentation, uh, measure students' progress toward her goal? How well is that aligned? Uh, so I'm going to go with it depends, right? <laughs> so um, because I have this in my class as well, essentially, and there is a large portion that goes into those those elements that don't align with her her goal. So her goal is to get them to essentially do the business case of HRM, right? So, um, and that's the meat of the content of what they're presenting. But all those other factors of how good their slide quality is, their public speaking ability. The reason why I say it depends is that there are these other little things that filter into our class. And at FSU is the oral communication competency requirement, OCCR, that is required, which wants us to measure their ability to publicly speak and present, not the content. And that has to be a substantial part of the grade. And so the in-between the lines here is what I read, is that there's this other key requirement that is nagging at her grading scheme. Um, It's a completely different set of aptitudes, basically. They're aptitudes, right, so they're, yeah, so domains of knowledge, but as a university, it's been decided that our students should have these skills, and they have to find their way into classes, and a lot of class you could take this in a public speaking class, but our students can't take a public speaking class because of how tight our, our credit requirements are for graduation. We don't have any of these extra credits to spend towards pretty much anything. And so we bury all these liberal study requirements, uh, upper division writing, uh, oral competency into our classes, um, and we evaluate upon them And because we need to, because the university says that that's a requirement for graduation. Yeah, I, I think if, I mean, when I first read this, I said it was, it was misaligned. But I, I, I think if, if you added one word to what she wants, where she says she wants students to use their knowledge of key concepts, theories, and process HRM to analyze, I think if she said analyze, evaluate, and communicate various approaches and business environment, I think then it's a little better line because, you know, you can do all this stuff, but if you can't communicate it, then you're in a lot of trouble. Now, 
you know, if they use Comic Sans font, I'm not going to knock off 35%, even though I find it kind of annoying. But, um, but <laughs> so there's a time and a place for Comic Sans font. Right. So, um, if you're a kindergarten teacher, I mean, you can make points with Comic Sans because, so for example, there's a research in using uh, cartoons in, mm-hmm. in in education, and that like there's a engineering professor. It's kind of interesting. He developed these cartoon characters that he embeds in all his lectures, and they're they're the ones that communicate the main idea. So you have this comic character that is communicating the main idea of the lecture that's throughout the entire class. It's by design. So com- mm-hmm. so when you have the thought bubble, the Comic Sans f- font is the idea from the comic. And so there's a place for it in your, in your work. When I was on this uh, Army CTA program, it was this big robotics program, and we were up at, I forget which university, but we had some uh, higher-level person from the army get up and give a talk about they were building if you've google big dog uh these big robots and things so they they were we were talking about systems like this and this was at the point where they were starting to think about we're going to weaponize these things and so they had this whole talk and it was in comic sans font and you had these big dog robots with weapons on them and i i just thought it it was hilarious to me uh but that's a case where I didn't think it fit as well. Yeah, you have to. I know you're pretty big into storytelling, and so Mm -hmm. like what what your content on your slides should be adding to your your story, not distracting from it. So if it's in that case, Comic Sans was distracting from the story, but there's a time and a place that you can put these more fun elements of that we kind of always joke about, right? Like. you know, I, I've used wingdings in, in some of my presentation slides before as a result, right? Because it's not about what's actually on the slide, but showing them how to make content that adds to And so the words don't matter, so I put it in wingdings to kind of prove that. Um, um, but the one of my favorite comedians, Eddie Izzard, has a, a bit about um, sometimes it's, not what you say, but how you say it, that matters. And he goes into singing the Star Spangled Banner, but he doesn't actually sing any of the words, but he goes through this whole like process of like I'm of emotionally conveying on how big it is, but he's got the, t- the right tone, he's got the right uh, timbre, right? And so every, you can kind of figure out that, hey, he's singing the Star Spangled Banner, and he's really passionate about it. So, yeah, I think it shows that there's relative value in expression as far as you know incorporating that into your presentation i think there is as you said a time and a place for it um and uh, one, one thing that um that reminded me of is you were, you mentioned andrew huberman earlier uh in this podcast and it was something he was talking about i talked to you about this earlier today about how um I didn't realize because he always wears long sleeves. He's got full sleeve tattoos on both of his arms like I do. And um, when he is teaching class, he teaches neuroscience, um, he always makes a point of not showing them um, because he doesn't want to make it about himself. He does not want to make the content about himself. And even just by showing, uh, you know, body art that is distracting, um, he feels that 
that's taking away from the content he's trying to convey to his students in the time window that he has to work with. And, um, you know, that's an instance where uh, it actually, it better serves his mission to uh, remove that personal expression. Uh, whereas, but I can understand in the point, especially with what we were talking about, about people's attention spans with a PowerPoint, um, sometimes it does serve your mission to, to get a little creative in how you, you choose to organize your information, especially if it's something that, uh, if it's a, like an heuristic technique that, uh, uh, that allows people to better memorize what you're trying to drill down. Yeah, there's a lot of information about that, like especially like uh, dealing with jokes in the classroom. Like I like a good joke, and so I use humor probably too much in my classroom because there's there's a point at which they're not going to remember the content; they're going to run remember the funny joke, right? So the funny joke should punctuate the content. If, but I'm not that funny to do that. So the but. All the same is you can distract. So the sleeve tattoos, if it's something that, you know, you want them to remember the content, that's why they're there for the class to begin with. So you can get too fancy with animations in PowerPoint, or you can have these beautiful slides that they're going to remember how beautiful they were, but not the content that was transmitted. So So I should get some tattoo Euler's equation somewhere on my chest and come in. No shirt on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I think they would just remember the lack of a shirt. Uh, I'm not sure. that. Uh, I don't know. They probably would not forget that equation, though. Yeah. Um, yeah. So maybe it does serve the... That's, I think that's good alignment. Um, yeah. All right, last one here. So I like this one, too. I got to remember why. So one of Professor A's important goals for student learning in his engineering course is for students to demonstrate the ability to work collaboratively with team members, including communicating effectively, solving interpersonal problems, and taking responsibility for work produced by the group. So he asked them to work in teams on the major project, which involves research writing, presentation, or presenting an analysis of existing devices a plan for designing new and a better device, and an explanation or defense of, of their design. He assigns them all the same grade, regardless of contribution, so that they will have to work out the differences themselves, an important life skill. He also has many other goals related to essential concepts and skills that the students must learn. He doesn't have much class time to devote to talking and working in groups. He does share a list of tips, though, and he also shares a story about a bad experience he had working in a group so that they can learn from his mistakes. So, how well does Professor A's assignment, this group project, measure students' progress toward his stated goal? So there's a lot to unpack there, right? So first off, is uh, you were talking about the, again, there's, there's hidden language in there so um, that I find interesting. Um, the ability to work in groups, the, that statement right there was literally taken right from ABET's website. So that's an ABET requirement that they've buried into their, their, their assignment. Um, and some of it is to 
I'm trying to find it right now specifically, but like an ability to effectively communicate using the the written word. Um, uh, there's one that's working on teams and the ability to collaborate and work on teams. These are direct requirements that are ABET that they've kind of nested into this problem. Um, and so, you know, yeah, it doesn't align, right, is the, the moral of the story here. But, like, the learning to work in teams and when somebody doesn't pull their weight and how do you grade differences in that, se in that setting? Yeah, when I, well, my response that I wrote down here on this was, my first thing was, what a freaking disaster. <laughs> this is socialism. <laughs> I mean, the same grade regardless of contribution. I just thought he was trolling his students with that. Um, well, I mean, that happens, like, that happens a lot, right? In, in every class, senior design included, where they're getting the same grade on the content, how do you divide up content that they all worked collaboratively on? I thought um, you guys do peer reviews. We do peer reviews, but that how does How's that you write project in? scope and and as a team and as part of the the team dynamic is they divide and conquer. So I've given them all their assignments and they'll structure out and be like, all right, Dr. Oates, you're going to write the project scope, but I'm going to do the customer needs statement. So we're all going to get the same grade on project scope, even though you did all the work. But later on, we're going to get the same grade. And we meet and we review it as a team, but one person did all the work on that assignment, which is effective use of team of, of team strategy. To have them all sit around the same mm -hmm. assignment is not necessarily beneficial to the, to the project. And learning mm -hmm. to manage that on a project is truly important. Like, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's something I haven't thought enough about. When you, you assign different components within this report or, or whatever, so you know who that belongs to, and you could grade that, um, but there's a step where there has to be some fusion and an overall grade, and that's got a... Do you factor that in as different percentages, individual effort, group effort, or... I mean, it's just not... I, it's bandwidth, right? So what what are we trying to get out of that? And so sometimes I'm able to, I, I have specific assignments that are individual assignment that I could discern differences of, of, of performance. Then at other times they're working on, if, if the three of us were working on a project, we would not go linearly and all hover around the same project together. Yeah. You, you, there would be delegation of work, and that's an imp that truly is an important skill to learn. It does also it also reflects um, what we see in most workplaces because, as we all know, anyone who's ever worked a professional job knows that uh, not all tasks are created equally, and nor do they take the same amount of effort or time. Um, right, and that's just realistic. So, in that respect, I, I do think that there's. Um, Merit to the discussion being had, um, but I also understand the obvious gut reaction, which is, you know, this is bullshit. <laughs> like, but, like, in the workplace, and this is salient to me because I'm the AVET coordinator, like, we all got the same grade on AVET, but 
this lion's share of the work was not. Yeah, but not everyone worked on a uh, however many page long uh, right SSR. Right, um, and so that's fine. That's because that's what that's business, and that's how it works. But we all got the same grade. I would say, to some degree, you get evaluated differently each year on that. I I think there's an evaluation that I you, you recognized on how much effort I put into that, and that, that showed on my annual eval, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But on service, that that got a little bit of a bump, and that's essentially a peer review. Mm-hmm. But for, as far as Ava's concerned, we oh, all yeah. got the same grade. Yeah, yeah. And, and so peer review, on the peer review side of it, which is exactly what you did, mm-hmm. you you gave me a higher peer review, but our grade on the assignment was the same. Yeah, so everyone benefits. Right. And I'm not saying as far as, like, academics are concerned and, like, proper teaching that w- that it's not aligned, and there is there is a problem with that. I have tried to have them say, highlight in different colors which portions were your contribution. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what ends up happening is you'll you'll know that there's 50% of, if there's a team of four, there's going to be 25, 25, and 25. It's all going to be broken down nice and evenly, even though nobody contributed, or only one person contributed. So they'll That's just divide it out. That is interesting. Because they don't want retribution. Like the idea of, because on a later assignment, that student could then take my name off. Yeah, it's an interesting game theory problem it seems like or survive maybe you should talk to christian how he got through survivor there's a there's almost like a student code of like don't say bad things about your other teammates Mm -hmm. so one way that i I try to get around it on on peer evals is if you have self-awareness then you get extra credit so if you like got rated poorly and you said you contributed poorly you'll get extra credit for that I wonder too with this thing about we we try to promote or we've been talking about promoting failures as an opportunity for learning. Um, you know, can you weight these things? Like, yeah, mm-hmm. here are some things I screwed up. Maybe some to some degree self awareness that you mentioned. But once you're aware of it, then next round, how how weighty should you put on that improvement? Yeah. So. There's, there's a couple things I do with peer evals, and the, the first one is there's no, it's a completion grade. You completed it, you evaluated your peers, you get you get full credit. And, but you'll still see the results from the, your peers that say, hey, you're not pulling your weight. And the second one now counts, that your your evaluation counts as part of your score. And so you had time to correct if you and each time they get bigger and bigger in weight so they like double in weight each time mm-hmm. so if it was first one was set out of 10 points and 10 points for completion the second one's 20 points third one's 40 points mm-hmm. the fifth, fourth one's 80 points so you have a lot of time to recover and you, if you can keep up the, mm-hmm. the trend then you recover the other thing I do because I, I learned um, is I don't let you because that, the last evaluation is the one that's most likely going to be honest because there's no chance for you to retaliate. 
So I make it so that you can't tank someone's, there's a limit of how far it could, even if you got terribles all the way across. And, and but you, your first couple ones were all perfect. So I'm going to be like, there's some memory in it that like you mm-hmm. can't make them drop too far. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a tough problem. Um, so before we get out of here, what what do you think overall in terms of that this workshop? And because if you remember the the goal, obviously the goal is to get our students learning better, but also to start integrating these learning assistants into the class to try to facilitate facilitate that too. So. What do you think moving forward in terms of, of doing that? Where the, the good points are, where the, the challenges may be? So f- implementing learning assistance, we want to get them in where they can have the biggest impact. But we also want them in the earliest classes that we can have that impact. Um, you know, I use TAs. I use my TAs like learning assistance. Um Everyone has a different skill set, so I have TAs that are really good at the learning assistant side, and I have some that, like, you know, they're really better better suited for the feedback side and, like, going in and typing in, like, hey, you, these were problems and mechanics with your, your calculations and whatnot. And so mm-hmm. I try to get a diverse set of TAs when I recruit them that, hey, this person is going to be the one that's going to be meeting with you and helping you and growing your project. So... As far as moving forward with getting LAs, I think that the, the big part is is finding the class that is going to be, um, have the longest effect with it. Yeah. And the biggest effect. I definitely agree there. Uh, we definitely want to start there. Um, especially since we're at a college that has two sets of, or students from two universities that are pretty distinct coming in to try to get them to work together better. And I'm hoping LAs will facilitate that to some degree. Because I, I think when you start as a freshman, you, you meet students you work with, and you kind of come up with, through them. And if, if they're all engineers, you're probably going to continue working with them, um, which, which kind of defeats the point of the diversity of thought um, when they come here. I think that's some of the trade-offs. So I hope they'll be able to facilitate that. The, the other thing I found that's non-trivial, and hopefully it's, we can find the support for faculty to just find time to do this, is I, I sent you the, the learning guide that I put together, and this was to some degree a lot taking the one that was posted that Leslie Richardson put up and modifying it. And some of it I, I just kept, tweaked it a little bit, but it takes time to go through that just that exercise and then changing a whole course will will take several years. Yeah, I mean trying to, just adjusting my syllabus to not be such a legal document. Um and and can so there's there's two I have two I've compartmentalized it into two schools of thought of where like it doesn't need to be a legal document. It should be something that's more approachable to students. And vice versa. I don't know which one's right. So I think that the the official syllabus, in my mind, should be the legal document. And it should be like, this is essentially my promise to you that I'm going to do my best to follow these rules and 
and grade you in this fair assessment way. And if you promise to contribute time, you should get these course objectives out of it. Yeah, I, I thought that's, yeah, I thought they were separate documents too. And one, the learning guy was just more informal so they could kind of translate it to some degree. And it would refer back to the, the legal, more dry, boring version so they have it for reference. But I quiz them on the, the legal, mm-hmm. dry, boring side mm-hmm. so that there's I, there's a Canvas quiz and nobody likes it. But like, yeah, and I, like I do I things like, you can turn assignments in late. It's, you lose ten percent per day, mm-hmm. um, and Canvas will automatically calculate that for me, so I don't have to keep track of it. I just program it into Canvas, and you lose ten percent per day. But the this is a free question if you guys are listening to this. So, um, how, how many how many days do you get before you get can can still have a positive score? So assume you get a perfect. And most students are like, oh, 10% today, I get 10 days to turn in an assignment late. Will you go negative? No, it stops at zero. But like, but to get a positive score, you only get nine days. Because if you turn it on that 10th day, that's a zero. So that, that's what I need them to recognize is that you really don't get nine days late, not 10. Um, so what kind of questions go into this syllabus quiz? I make them compute that. And I make them acknowledge what the present values of homework one is this, or mm-hmm. homeworks are this, and I, they have to go in and look it up and type it in so they actually have. Um, I also make them acknowledge what the rubric is or the score breakdown. And because I've got, it's heartbreaking to me, but like, uh, you know, the idea of I got a 89.4 something, can you round me up? And so um, I'm sorry there's a cutoff for somebody. There's always a cutoff. So if I move it for you, then the next person down, there, I got an 89.3. Can you round me up? Mm-hmm. And it's, so I say that it's calculated to five significant digits. <laughs> Very good. So it, that's what the score is. So then I make them tell me what that rounding, num- what is the lowest possible score you could get to get an A. I mean, you have a big class. Maybe some of our smaller classes, we should have the faculty do this and have them um, take a selfie in front of the office of the faculty just so they know how to get there and ask them questions. Yeah, and it, um, some of those soft skills are important. Some of our industry partners value the soft skills more than the, the calculus-based skills. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah communication part and so i make them all come to my office at least once they have to and they have to send me a calendar invite that works with my schedule so they have to go and look at my calendar figure out when i'm free and send me a calendar invite Mm -hmm. Um, that's good because then i can say hey they know how to send a calendar invite and they know Mm -hmm. how to look at their boss's calendar and schedule something appropriately Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah those are tough skills. Uh, th- uh, pivoting uh, in the same vein, uh, you're, you're talking about soft skills now. This, of course, reminds me of previous conversations we've had about Carl uh, Bergstrom's class that he teaches at the University of Washington, the calling bullshit data reasoning in a digital world. I'm actually looking at the syllabus online right now. And it, it's just a good moment to bring up the fact that um, the essential 
critical thinking skills, the ones that are, for instance, the oral efficiency requirement that FSU has. Um, that's something that I, I, I think just in my own layperson's observation could be drilled in more earlier. Um, and even though we're an engineering college, uh, I'd love to, it would just straight up tickle me to see that taught here. Um, if we ever have the bandwidth to do it, uh, and see whether that has an impact on, uh, student success. Well, I've gotten a couple of emails recently from students that say like all my, like minutia nitpicking, um, especially on presentations be like, Nope, that's not aligned. Right. no, you don't, you're not telling the story right, use bigger font, and like just grilling them on that. Recently, one of my students went, and he's on an internship, and he replied back, and he's like, thank you for doing that, because amongst the other interns, I'm looking like a rock star. Well, when they end up in any, in any kind of position where there's any kind of institutional bureaucracy, they'll be thankful that you drilled that into their heads. Um, because that's the kind of thing, I mean, if, if, if they don't, if, if it annoys people to have you sending back things to them at your level, I mean, wait till they're working for Lockheed or Caterpillar or something. Um, it's going to be much more brutal, especially when it's your salary on the line. Or if you're working at that company and you have your customer come in that's about to invest and you present, it doesn't go that well. That's, that's never good. And it'll happen. You just need to learn how to recover from it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I know, I know you got to get going soon. Any, any final thoughts? Nothing specific. I mean, I guess I always have final thoughts, but like the the biggest thing that I took away from this is making my my assignments align better. And if I even if and that goes to the transparency of the assignment, too. So sometimes I have these assignments that they align with what I'm trying to get done, but the students don't see it. And so if the students don't see it, it doesn't align. Yeah. It has to be transparent enough that they see it and align with my course objectives as well. Yeah. Otherwise, why are they going to do it? Or are they trying to get out of it? And then that ties back into why am I motivated? Mm-hmm. Why? Why am I solving this math problem I'm never going to use to design a car or airplane? Yeah. But the, when they see the value through a trans- well-written, transparent assignment, and it aligns with the objectives, they're going to be more motivated to, to accomplish them. Mm-hmm. And you'll get more out of them. And then when you do make that bad assignment that doesn't align they're going to be more forgiving and still do it. And then they'll probably give you feedback say, hey, I didn't really understand why we did this. Yeah, yeah. Neil, any last thoughts? Uh, I'm just surprised that we went almost two hours here with a guy whose dad was a mechanic and is an engineer himself and an automotive engineer and didn't once talk about cars. Mm. Um, so we're going to have to have you on again, Shane, where we're just going to you know, uh, talk shop and... Uh, and really get into it about that because um, I feel like that was a missed opportunity, frankly. So yeah, um, definitely do that. So, uh, but you're going to show up, right? I mean, you um, you still want to collect a paycheck, right? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. so I, I don't expect you'll be far. We'll we'll find you soon. But all right, folks, I think that's all she wrote for right now. Thank you for listening. Um, here's our outro.